Hey folks, how the hell are you? I'm Houston. And I'm Kaylin, and you're listening to Crime or Reason. Hey everybody, how are we doing today? Are we doing great? Are we doing spooky? Are we having lots of fun? Are we having a fantastic day? Because I know that we are. Heck yeah, we are. As fantastic as we can be because I managed to get myself sick again. <laughs> I've been a little stuffy, but things have been a-okay. This weather has been crazy. Mm-hmm. That's definitely what it was because you were the last person that I saw and that was a week ago. So, <laughs> um, And I started somehow getting sick last night. And I didn't go anywhere, so I'm not entirely for sure how it happened. We're Gucci. <laughs> it's a so. little, little summer cold because it's beautiful outside today. After it was pissing and pouring all day yesterday. It's a whole like 80 degrees. We love it here. We do. So, Kaylin, what do you have for us today? I've got a wild tom of a story, and it is located right here at home in Kentucky. I yes. think we got a couple things coming up that are... Um, Kentucky-based here in the, the good old hollers of Kentucky. Good old hollers. Going down to the creek later. Oh, yeah. God willing <laughs> and the creek don't rise. If you couldn't tell from our previous episodes, we are from Kentucky. And I thought that it would be a great idea to maybe bring it home for a, a couple of episodes. We have plenty of stuff here in Kentucky to keep it spooky and keep it criminal. So I think that uh, I think that Kentucky is a good place to start. Start at our roots. And boy, did I find a case, Houston. All right, let's go for it. I'm ready. Actually, first things first, I did want to talk about what happened to me yesterday because we've been talking about my uh, possibly probably haunted basement. Yes, yes. Uh, Nothing happened in the basement. However, yesterday as I came home on my lunch break, I was stunned because I was locked out of my house. Not... With my lock and key, where I, like, you know, stick my keys in the door, my screen door was locked. And as we know, screen doors don't just get locked from the inside. Correct. Especially whenever there's no one home, and I'm the last one who left. So, I came home, tried to open my screen door, couldn't open it for probably about five minutes. I go out to my garage, trying to figure it out, come back up to my door... I'm like, I'll just use my credit card and maybe, like, try and wiggle it in there to get it to unlock for me. Guess what? It opened up. As soon as I put my credit card up there and tried to open it, it opened up for me. So I came in my house and I thought, you know, maybe maybe credit cards have magnetic strips in them, correct? So I thought maybe, just maybe, my, my screen door is metal, so I thought maybe it kind of pulled that, that lock down. That locking mechanism came down. I tried to put the credit card next to my door. It didn't move it. Not one single budge. So, again, nothing crazy happens here. It's just minor inconveniences, like my basket getting thrown off my dryer. It sounds like your ghost is mad that you're about to sell the house. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's like, I found a friend in you, Kaylin, and now you're leaving. Oh, yeah. They're like, I'm going to lock you out. Anyway, I thought I'd tell you my fun little story about being locked out of my house by the ghosties of the basement. I feel like we have a haunted story every single episode about something that happened to us. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. 
Anyway, we will head into my very, very grim case. Kaylin has a surprise for us with this case. I do, I do. We are going to split this up into two whole parts. Two parts, our very first two parts. We are heading over just about four and a half hours away from my little hometown to a quiet town called Ashland, Kentucky. It's very similar to Owensboro, actually. Wanted to show you a picture of it before we started, but... While you're pulling that photo up, I would just like to say that you live in an actual city and you're talking about your little town. I genuinely live in a little town. (laughs) We have two McDonald's and like three gas stations and 54 churches and corn everywhere. Corn everywhere. That's literally it. This is Ashland, Houston. It's pretty. I think I've been to Ashland before. It's just been a minute. Does it look a little familiar here? Yeah, because it's over by Louisville. And they have... um, The bridge. The Blue Bridge. Yes, yes. They are right on the Ohio River. Mighty Ohio. Like I said, it is a four and a half hour drive away from us. And it's like modern day. It's a little artsy town where there's not a whole lot of extreme news happening. However, back in 1881... Some things got pretty out of hand. Now, Ashland's had its fair share of crimes, shootings, robberies, but life goes back to normal pretty quickly. Not, however, with this crime. This one was rough. So, my story starts just before Christmas on December 23rd. So, sad, sad time for all of this to happen. The Gibbons family is who we will be talking about. The Gibbons family was an average American family that most everyone in this town knew, but they definitely know them after what is called the Ashland Tragedy. This little family lived on 28th Street and Carter Avenue. John Gibbons, the father, was not home very often. He was off doing usually like small jobs and him and Miss Gibbons didn't really seem to get along very well. So it was for the best that he was not home. Now, Mr. Gibbons' odd jobs pretty well kept them up to speed on money just as well as anybody else was in Ashland. Now, Martha Gibbons was by all means a very caring and loving mother to her children. Her children's names are Robert, Fanny, and Sterling. They're just kind of your average family meshing in a neighborhood full of other average families. Now, Robert was the oldest in the household. He was 17. He was sadly crippled in an accident that involved a freight car where he actually lost one of his legs. Fanny was a very beautiful, well-developed 14-year-old girl. She had already learned exactly what it took to turn men's heads. She was a neighborhood favorite with a magnetic personality and the looks to match. She was outgoing and cheerful, and she had a lot of friends. She also had some not-so-welcome admirers, as we will learn. The youngest child was Sterling, who was 11. Martha and Sterling were going on a trip to Ironton to visit with Martha's eldest daughter, who had gotten married and she had moved out. Miss Gibbons. Is Ironton a place in Kentucky? Ironton is a town in Ohio. Miss Gibbons had gone to her neighbor, Miss Thomas, and asked if her daughter, Emma Carrico, who was a child from a previous relationship of Miss Thomas's, could stay over at their house to keep her kids company for the night. Now, Miss Thomas had no issues with Emma staying over because she'd be right across the street from her. Now, neighbors say that they heard the giggles of the kids enjoying their evening until they went to bed. Miss Thomas, the next morning, she was obviously a very early riser, which can't relate, 
She was up at around 4 a.m. She peeked across the street where her daughter was. She was looking out the window saying, you know, making sure nothing out of the ordinary was happening. So she went on with her morning chores and then again, she looked out the window around 6 a.m. This time at the Gibbons household, she saw some kind of flickering light in the window and she sat and watched in silent speculation until her greatest fear was realized. The blinds were set on fire and she started screaming and running across the street. The neighborhood was awoken to the sounds of sirens from fire trucks. Eventually, the three children were found and they were pulled from the house fire and laid on a mattress. In the beginning, it was assumed that the children had died of suffocation and smoke inhalation. However, they had physicians come in and take a look at the kids and they determined that much more happened throughout the night. So, like, before the fire ever even started? Yes, before the fire ever was even started. The bodies of these children were found to be horribly mutilated. The three teens' heads had been smashed in, and big trigger warning, you guys, this is rough. The two girls had been brutally raped before being murdered. And the fire was a wild attempt to cover up the crime. Now, as the day went on, the fire was put out and the search throughout the smoldering rubble began. Inside the house, they found bloody sheets and pillows, an axe and a crowbar, both covered with hair and blood. And the children's nightclothes were found and all were taken in as evidence. The following Sunday, a service was held with an overflow crowd at the Methodist Episcopal... The Methodist and what? (laughs) Episcopal. That's what I was going to say. The Methodist Episcopal Church. Mind you, I live in the Bible Belt. I can't breathe. All right. So anyway, a service was held with an overflow crowd at Methodist Episcopal Church. Episcopal. (laughs) Episcopal. For the children and after, they were buried in a common grave at Ashland Cemetery. A common grave, I had to look it up because I didn't know what exactly it was. A common grave are plots that they use to bury the bodies of unrelated individuals who died over the course of a few days, and they don't have the means to pay for a plot with private burial rites. The children obviously had a beautiful ceremony, were well taken care of, and then a committee was formed and money was raised to pay investigators to solve the brutal murders. Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin of Maysville had the backing of the townsfolk because he had some official authority, but it was another detective, J.B. Norris from Ohio, who jumped off with his very first theory of who did it. Of course, who do they always look at whenever a crime like this is committed? The father, or the husband, or the boyfriend. In this case, it was Mr. Gibbons, and the fact that his own daughter had been raped was basically just grazed over by the detectives. And the people of Ashland started to kind of run with this theory. There were even, like, articles published about his guilt because they didn't have a whole lot to go on in this case yet. They even printed wanted posters for the arrest of Mr. Gibbons. They were ready to pin everything on him. They weren't even for sure that it was him yet. Exactly. So as Detective Norris jumped into his investigation on Mr. Gibbons... Marshall Heflin got to work to prove Mr. Gibbons' full innocence because he had some serious doubts about his involvement. His reasoning was that the crime could not be carried out by just one person. 
He realized Mr. Gibbons must be located ASAP to prove his innocence. So, Saturday, December 31st, he was located in a remote area in West Virginia where he had been since December 16th. There, Heflin broke the heartbreaking news to Mr. Gibbons, who was still fully unaware of the tragedy. So, he brought Gibbons and Mr. Andrew Hager, who Gibbons had been boarding with, back to Ashland. Now, Hager testified on Gibbons' behalf that he had, in fact, been staying at his home since the 16th and that he had seen him every day since then. Hager stated that his home was located too far out for anyone to make it into town, catch a train to Ashland, and back in less than a day. This proved George Gibbons had nothing to do with the murders, but it left the town hungry for justice and vengeance. Now, humiliated once... They had all gotten back into town. Detective Norris caught the first train out of town, and Heflin became the lead detective. So now we've got Heflin doing everything. Now, a few days later, a man walked into the Ashland General Store of Geiger, Powell, and Ferguson and bought a cigar. Mr. Powell waited on the man, who he knew slightly as a regular customer by the name of George Ellis. Now, making conversation, Powell said, Well, now that old man Gibbons is in the clear, I wonder who it's going to fall on. At this statement, Ellis was clearly startled, evading the friendly gaze of Powell. Ellis turned pale and his hand began to tremble. You said gaze, but I thought you meant like gaze. <laughs> <laughs> the friendly gaze. And I was like, in the 1800s? Come in on. In the 1800s? Yes, friendly gaze. Really? Friendly gaze? So Ellis turned pale and his hand began to tremble. After regaining some control, he blurted out that he did have a clue who it might be and then murmured something about state's evidence before abruptly walking out the door under what he perceived were the accusing eyes of Powell. On January 2nd, 1882, George Ellis was taken to be questioned by Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin and the committee after his statements in the Ashland General Store. Ellis asked Heflin if he would be so kind as to explain to him the legal meaning of state's evidence. Heflin informed him that anyone guilty of a crime could inform on others involved in the crime and would likely get a lesser sentence than the other guilty party. We've seen that in a lot of cases, you know. Snitch. Ah. If someone tells on someone else, they give them a little bit lesser of a verdict because... Snitches get out of jail sooner. Yeah. Snitches get out of jail sooner. Now, that explanation seemed to have the desired effect on Ellis, and he said that he wanted to relieve his conscience by making a statement. Ellis eventually recounted every horrible detail of the heinous crimes committed against the Gibbons children. He stated on record that William Neal and himself had talked previously about Fanny Gibbons and Emma Carrico, and again, a big trigger warning, they had made plans to have intercourse with the girls before Christmas. Ew. I know, right? That's awful. Yeah. I told you she had some not-so-welcome admirers. Heflin at once called in some witnesses to what he hoped would be a forthcoming statement from Ellis. I'm going to add one more big trigger warning because things are about to get really hard. There are at least two versions of the first confession that Ellis had made implicating himself, William Neal, and George Kraft. But... They vary only slightly, one being more graphic in details. 
So they believe that maybe there was more than one person taking down the statements. So that's where the, the mishaps happened here. That's why we got a couple different stories. Right. Now the following is the less graphic of the two versions and it's still rough. If you don't want to hear this, go ahead and skip ahead. Ellis stated, A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, and that he was going to have intercourse with her, and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started, Kraft, Neil, and myself, and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards, I went in. So, Robbie started to get up when Kraft said, You had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping, and he began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, You had better stay away from there, when Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found after the fire. Wow. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed and they both said, George Kraft, what are you here for? Emma also startled to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him and I held her while he did terrible things to her. Neil then struck her on the head with the big end of the crowbar and she instantly died after throwing up her hands. Kraft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come and help him. He then raped her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls, and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over the bodies, and set fire to them with a match. We then left the house. Now, this is what Ellis's, one of Ellis's first confessions consisted of. So we've got some really awful things that happened to these poor kids. It's crazy how <clears throat> intense this already is, and we're like, not even through the first part. I know. And things just get crazier. Ellis claimed that they had been talking the matter over for several months. This was fully pre-planned. And on one occasion, while they were all working in the backyard together, Emma Carrico passed by and Neil swore that he intended to have carnal communication with her before Christmas. Kraft had made several similar statements about Fanny Gibbons. Ellis would subsequently make several more confessions or recant his earlier confessions each made to fit all of the circumstances. So the general basis of all of his confessions was the same, but he was continuing to switch it up as to who it was and what was happening. Now, after he made his confession, Kraft and Neil were immediately arrested and taken to the county jail in Catlettsburg, which is in Kentucky, about five miles away and remarkably were placed in the same cell with Ellis. And not so surprisingly, after a night in the same cell with Kraft and Neil, Ellis ended up completely changing all of his confession that he had made the previous evening. But it was too late. He had already gotten in and said, you know, this is what happened. This is who did it. He done told him. He was also quoted saying that Kraft and Neil had held him at gunpoint and threatened him to come to the house with them that night. So he was saying that it was all them. News of the confession had not been released to the public. However, word soon spread that the three men had been arrested and jailed. Now, for many, that was sufficient to take matters into their own hands, and talk of vigilante justice was in the air. And every single time that that happens, it just gets, like, worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Now, anxious courthouse officials began to receive reports of a mob being organized in Ashland with plans being laid to storm the courthouse and seize the prisoners. The court, fearing the worst, took the three to a jail in Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington is about two and a half hours or so. Yeah, it's about two and a half hours Mm -hmm. from us as well. So they were taken to a jail in Lexington for safekeeping. Accordingly, they were placed on the Catlettsburg Ferry and started down the river, but the mob got wind of it and started in pursuit in their whole other steamboat. After an exciting chase, the officers finally eluded the mob and arrived safely in Lexington. So now we've got them traveling on down the river together. So you're telling me that there was a police chase, but it was a steamboat police chase? They had a steamboat police chase. What I wouldn't give to be a part of a steamboat police chase at any given point in my life. Perks of living on the water, I guess. Maybe not anymore. That means we should be having more steamboat police chases (laughs) than we do. Now, during a stopover in Vanceburg, Kentucky, a few reporters were allowed to board the vessel. So they made a pit stop in Vanceburg. They allowed some interviewers to get in there and talk to these prisoners. Now, Kraft and Neil were both shackled together, and they were eager to talk, and they were even joking and singing with these guards. They both solemnly protested their innocence and were very confident that the real murderers would soon be found. Ellis was shackled a little distance away from them, and he didn't want to talk to the reporters. In jail in Lexington, Kentucky, George Ellis once again made a statement in which he said that his first statement was not true and had been forced from him by George Heflin at gunpoint. So he's saying that he made that confession because George Heflin decided to hold a gun to his head. Just like Kraft and Neil held a gun to his head to perform the crime. There are lots of people holding guns to people's head in the story. Mm -hmm. According to Ellis. Ellis doesn't seem like the kind of dude we could trust. Yeah. From what I can tell, he's not very trustworthy. Moving along to January 16th, William, Neil, and Kraft were both brought back to Catlettsburg. Neil was put on trial first for the murder of Emma Carrico. There was little condemning evidence produced by the prosecution. One woman said that she saw Ellis, Kraft, and Neil the morning of the murder a half mile away from the house. Others said Neil was uneasy following the murders and told them he feared suspicion that J.D. House, a man who helped remove the bodies from the burning house, testified that he saw Neil standing just 50 feet away from the blaze. So we've got all three of these men located near the house right after the murder's taken place. That seems damning. I also believe that seems very damning. I also found a newspaper clipping, and it said that all three men were present while the house was burning. It also said that they partook in some things that happened at the funeral, too. I don't know how true it is because, obviously, this was 1881, and it was written in a newspaper clipping from Catlettsburg, but it said that one of them had drove the hearse and that another one of them had been one of the pallbearers in the funeral. I absolutely hate that. Again, I'm not... Don't quote me on that because I, again, read it in a newspaper from 1881. So there were, there's a few misconstrued stories here. Like I, there's, there's a a couple different variations. Well, if it is true, I absolutely hate it. Yeah. 
In the trial, there was actually no physical evidence presented at all. Not sure how this happened because they took in the axe, the crowbar, and the children's clothes, and the bloody pillows, and the sheets. So during the trial, the prosecution produced their star witness, George Ellis. The defense had hoped to see this crazy man take the stand, and instead, Ellis was calm and composed and completely unwavering in his testimony. We had the confession, and now we're reading the testimony that was actually announced in court by Ellis. His testimony says, I have resided in Ashland since May, have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House's Brickyard most of the time. I'm acquainted with the prisoner Neil, also with Kraft. We three worked together at the Brickyard. I did not see either of them during the day of December 23rd. I saw them later that night. They came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up. They wanted to see me. I did so, put on my clothes and my boots, and I went out to the gate. Kraft said, you must go with us. I asked him where. He said, to the Gibbons, and we will have some fun. I told him, no, it was too late. I won't go. They said, I have to go, and Kraft drew his revolver. Neil said, bring him along, and we started. When we got inside the gate at the Gibbons, Kraft picked up an axe, and Neil got a crowbar from under the porch floor. Kraft pried open the window, and Neil was the first to go in. Kraft next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, come on, and I did so. They took the axe and crowbar in the house with them. We passed through the front room to the second room, middle room, where the girls and Robbie were asleep. Kraft and Neil went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took hold of Fanny Gibbons and Neil of Emma. They stifled the girls by putting their hands over their mouths and choking them. The noise awakened Robbie, who was sleeping on a lounge in the same room. Kraft, who had choked Fanny near to death, left her and struck Robbie in the head with the axe and killed him. So this lines up with that first confession he made. And then returned to the bed. Neil dragged Emma off the bed onto the floor and Kraft ordered me to hold her until Neil accomplished his purpose, which I did. After Neil let her up, she began to raise up, crying, and said she was going home to tell her mother. Neil said, I guess not. Like, incredibly condescending to this child. Horribly condescending. And he struck her on the head with the crowbar, and she fell back on the floor, dead. Kraft ordered me to come and help him. Now, Ella said, I went to the bed and put my hand on Miss Gibbons' shoulder, and Kraft assaulted her, after which he got the axe and killed her. Kraft then said to me, you have done none of the killings, but you must have a hand in it, and ordered me to get the coal oil and pour it over the dead body of the girls. I did, and Kraft set them on fire, and we left the house. When we got out, we separated. I went home. I don't know where they went. I got home about half past three o'clock and asked my wife to make breakfast. I laid down, but I did not go to sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. Mind you, Miss Gibbons looked out the window at four, and then by six, she was hollering about the, the fire. On the following Sunday morning, when Kraft and I met at the place where the house was burned, and Kraft asked me to take a walk. We went out towards the cemetery. He began to talk about the affair and said it must be kept quiet. We met Neil, and we all talked about it. They wanted me to sign a pledge never to tell about it. I told them I would think about it. They told me I better do better than that, and if I did not do so by the next Saturday night, they would put an end to me. We separated. I went home, and Kraft and Neil went away together. 
So this was all Alice's testimony against Neil and Kraft. The defense team was headed up by Thomas R. Brown. He was the son of the presiding Judge Brown. The key witness for the defense was Miss Ellis, who was called and testified that she woke at midnight and at 4.30 a.m., and her husband was there each time. She said she heard no noise and did not believe her husband left the house that night. Earlier, when visiting her husband in jail, Miss Ellis was overheard pleading with her husband to tell the real truth. I don't understand exactly what happened. We may never know exactly what happened. But I don't really think that this crime could have been committed by just one person. Right. Well, I mean, it just, there's a lot of stuff that's like kind of like back and forth on this. So it's hard to get a clear understanding of what actually happened in there. Right. And again, it happened so long ago that there's a lot of different possibilities. Oliver Hampton was called and testified that Ellis said in front of him and A.C. Campbell that both Neil and Kraft were innocent. Again, Ellis is doing these testimonies and then recanting it and then telling them another confession and recanting it. He's told so many different stories now. Who, which one are we to trust? Now, several reliable witnesses were called to prove Neil's character. His wife, Miss Neil, was present. She was crying at times while Neil sat at a table, scribbling on a piece of paper and conversing with his lawyer. He was described looking much younger than his 36 years of age with light hair and a dark mustache. He and his wife had two small children. So on February 6th, 1882, after only 17 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Neil guilty and they sentenced him to hang on February 14th, 1882. A few days later, Kraft was convicted on the same evidence and was also sentenced to the gallows on the same date. Again, George Ellis would confess and recant at least a half dozen times, each with even greater conviction than the other. So he's kind of telling all kinds of elaborate stories. In February 1882, he even made a statement to the Cincinnati newspaper where he said that him and two African-Americans that he hired committed the murders, that he alone raped and killed the girls while his accomplices held them down. He said as they crept away from the Gibbons house that he saw Kraft and Neil walking along the street and decided to put the blame on them. So a few days later, he again just denied that he ever made this statement. <sighs> I know, it's hard to keep up. Yeah, it's wild. A wild time. In May of 1882, Ellis was returned from Lexington to Catlettsburg to stand trial. Now, several reliable witnesses were called to prove Neil's character. His wife, Miss Neal, was present, crying at times while Neal sat at a table scribbling on a piece of paper and conversing with his lawyer. He was described as looking much younger than his 36 years of age. He had light hair and a dark mustache, and he and his wife had two small children. In May of 1882, Ellis was returned from Lexington to Catlettsburg to stand trial. Throughout the trial, his wife sat beside him often in tears. On Friday, June 2nd, 1882, he was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. Most observers felt this sentence was befitting and hoped that one chapter would now be closed. However, that night around midnight, a group of 20 men with black hoods covering their faces took over the engine house of the Chatteroy Railroad in Ashland. They ordered the watchman to hitch up two flat cars and they proceeded to Catlettsburg. They arrived around 3 a.m., halting just across the street from the jail. They ran into the jail. They demanded admittance, which, of course, 
the jailers refused. Right. They stormed the jail by force. They led George Ellis out of the jail, and he was taken back to Ashland, where he was hanged on a sycamore tree right near the scene of the murders. Told you, a whole story of vigilante justice in Kentucky. Like, don't be a vigilante, but also in this case, like, hell yeah. Some of the witnesses said that Ellis had met his fate very calmly, as though he knew that this time was coming. And he made his final statement. As in his original confession, he said that he, Kraft, and Neil were guilty. And his last request was that his body not be frickin' mutilated. He declined the opportunity to pray, saying that he was prepared to die. Now, the sycamore tree that he was hung in stood about 100 yards from the burned house. And on the same tree, on the same limb, was a swing that neighborhood children had played on in happier days. The body of Ellis was allowed to hang until the next afternoon when it was cut down by the coroner. The death was ruled to have come at the hands of a person or persons unknown. Justified. Justified. And this is where I'm going to stop. Which means we have a second part coming. We have a second part because we still have to go through the trials of Neil and Kraft. Right, because they ended up not getting hanged. And things got crazy. Things got crazy. There's so much that happens after Ellis was hung. There's a lot more vigilante justice coming, or at least attempted vigilante justice, I should say. I'm excited. So I'm going to leave you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger, and we will continue my Ashland tragedy. Well, the Ashland tragedy. I'm excited about it, and maybe I'll be able to talk a little more because I won't be so sick. You poor thing. It's fine. We'll get through it one way or another. And as usual, stay safe. Stay healthy. And stay criminal. criminal. Bye, you guys. Bye.